Welcome to freedom becoming fully alive. Are you becoming fully alive? What does it mean to become fully alive? That's our theme and emphasis for today. So glad you're here. Welcome to freedom. Let's pray. Lord, we do commit this time to the Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the freedom that we have in you. We thank you for the life we have in you. Thank you, Lord, that every day can be a fresh start, a fresh start that leads to freedom and becoming fully alive. Lord, anoint this time, bless this time, fill it with your presence, Lord. Give us revelation, Lord. Open our eyes to see. Open our hearts to receive. And, Lord, move on us to obey and respond and walk in the light that you give us today. Thank you so much, Lord. You're wonderful, and we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. We're so glad you're here this morning. It's always great to see new faces and familiar faces. Notice I didn't say old faces. <laughs> familiar faces. We've been in the flow of freedom. This is part three, se the uh, seventh session. And uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll start over again. In the beginning, it'll be wonderful. Uh, information on the back table in that regard. But today, we're going to talk more about what it means. What it means to become fully alive. We've really been talking about that all along, but today we're going to be even more focused in what that really means and what that really looks like. I'd like to refer to the back of your outline, actually. We'll go to the back, and then we'll start in the beginning. Go to the end, so to speak. What is the end? And then we will relate to that in the now. Are you becoming fully alive? What would it be like to be fully alive? Well, this would be an example of how we could put that into words. I am now free to love and to be loved, free to give and free to receive, and free to live the life as the son or daughter that my heavenly Father destined me to live fully alive and free. We could also say, I've been set free by the Son, Jesus Christ, and now as a son or daughter, one of his, I am becoming fully alive in my Father's love. It's my desire progressively and increasingly that we come alive in the revelation, in the light of our Father's love, and that we could actually embrace the true identity that if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ and savingly believed in him, that we are his son, we are his daughter, and that we would actually see that we are a favored son, a favored daughter, not a hired hand, not an orphan, not struggling for acceptance and love, but already reveling in the love that we already have. If you know me, you'll know that one of my familiar greetings from my heart is to tell you that you're a favored daughter or a favored son. And the Lord has given me eyes of destiny to see that. You may think, well, I don't feel like a favored daughter. I don't feel like a favored son. I don't feel like anything right now. I'm just trying to survive. But with eyes of destiny, may we see ourselves as he sees us, fully alive and free, fully alive and free. I love the word becoming. 
It's such an encouraging word because it implies we're in progress, in process rather, <laughs> and in progress. We're in process, but there's always more with him. So as we take a look at today's lesson, in some ways it'll be an overview of what we've covered the last several weeks, but I pray that it will be new and fresh and not just a review, but the Lord will speak fresh life into it. In this process of becoming fully alive, what does that mean? What parts, what are the vital parts of that? We've got to have a direction. What are those specifics? On your outline, part A, free to be, free to be the real you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. I can remember 30 years ago. I was just thinking about this last night, actually. 30 years ago, at the age of 24, the summer of 1974, the old Steve died. I'm so glad he's dead. Honey, I know you're glad he's dead, too. He was insanely jealous. He was extremely controlling. He was abusive. He was prideful. He was always on his mind. But the Lord got a hold of me. The Lord opened my eyes to see. The Lord gave me a revelation of my sin and my need for him, my desperate need for him. And I repented of running my life. I surrendered all to him. And I became a son, a son, one of his sons. Is your belief about the real you based on your heavenly father's love for you? Are you becoming fully alive? in his love? Or do you believe that you're the sum total of your life's experiences or some part thereof? What we believe about ourselves has great power. The Word of God says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What you believe is what you will live from. And who is first in your life? Who is the most important person in your life or the one you're trying to please? the one who's first, you will reflect his or her opinion. You'll live from what you think they think of you. So if you've surrendered to your father's love, if he's having the last say about you, you'll live like that. But if you're stuck in an event in your life where you were sexually abused, abandoned, left, divorced, betrayed, and you're stuck there, and you believed into something about yourself there, and you've just added to it since, and the enemy's thrown in his lies, a false identity could have been created. That's so real. It's so real. And then we live as if it is real. But it's a lie. The truth will set us free. As it says in John 8, 31 and 32, if you continue in my word, you will be true disciples of mine, says the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And as it says in our outline today, the theme verse, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Is your history your identity, or is your identity an expression of his history, his story? Jesus Christ came to planet Earth. He died for our sins. On the third day, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he poured out his spirit upon us who believe we have the living God living within us. 
free to be the real you. Are you free to be the real you? Are you still, are you still trying to be like somebody else? Are you still trying to be what you think somebody else wants you to be? Are you still trying to be what you think is acceptable? Are you still trying to be a good person, a better person? Or are you free to be the unique, one-of-a-kind you at peace with God and what he thinks of you, but also at peace with yourself? Two sides of the same coin there. We can be at peace with God and we can say, well, I know he loves me, he thinks I'm wonderful, but I, I don't think so. I'm not at peace with myself. God wants to put it together. Both and, not either or, both and. Reality, a reality connection. Free to be. I know what it's like to compare. I know what it's like to be jealous. I know what it's like to covet. I know what it's like to be at peace with Steve Peterson as a unique creation, free to be, who he created me to be, with thanksgiving in my heart, with a sense of purpose and destiny like never before. May it be for each of us coming alive in our Father's love, coming alive in that revelation of our true identity, coming alive that our life has purpose and we're made to know him and to glorify him and enjoy him. And when we show up, life doesn't define us. Circumstances don't define us. What somebody thinks of us doesn't define us. Our Heavenly Father defines us. So when we come on the scene, we actually bring definition to what's going on. Not here I am, you here I am, you lucky people definition, but I'm reveling in my Father's love. I'm secure in Him. He has me here for a purpose. I'm going to reflect what He thinks, not the circumstances or what somebody else thinks. Then we're free, free to come alive, free not to hold back. And then there's freedom from. Secondly, freedom from the real problem. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, Jesus Christ. Did you know that every sin has the same DNA? Me first. Think of it. If you break any one of the Ten Commandments, it's me first. If you lie, it's me first. If you commit adultery, it's me first. If you covet, it's me first. And certainly, if you're guilty of the first, commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's not him first. It's me first. And even if it's something or someone else, you're the one that put that something or someone else in that first place, so it's me first again. And me first is rooted in the sin of pride. Not here I am, you lucky people pride necessarily. It could be being down on ourselves, but it could be thinking too much about ourselves always on our mind. What kind of pride can you identify with? Thinking too highly, thinking too lowly, or thinking too much? Are you always on your mind? Does any people, does any person, place, or thing have more power, influence, or effect on you more than Jesus Christ and who he thinks you are, what he wants you to be, what he wants to be to you? If we do that, if we're guilty of that, put a person, place, or thing ahead of him in importance and allow a person, place, or thing to have more effect on us than him, who he wants to be to us, then we're actually guilty of idolatry. Not 
because we're intending to be, but the essence of idolatry is putting something ahead of God, something or someone. And as it says in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. It's so easy to do, though, isn't it? To put something or someone ahead of God. Well, what is the price of freedom? Thirdly, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Galatians 2.20. He is my life. He lives in me. Is your goal happiness? Or is your goal Jesus for himself? Not for what he can do for you, but who he is. There's a difference. Because if it's happiness, you'll want him for what he can give you. If it's Christ for himself, you'll want him just for him because he's so wonderful and you want to worship him and adore him and that he becomes your desire. Did you know that experiencing freedom is a process? includes positives and negatives intended by God to bring us to the end of ourselves, which is really the cross, which is his means to his goal, himself, and experiencing his life. The price of freedom is great. It will cost us our life. Are we willing to invite Jesus to do whatever he wants to do in our lives, using those positives and negatives to conform us to his, him, his image and to make us the son or daughter that he wants us to be? There will not be freedom. We will not become fully alive unless this is a part of it. Because we must give him permission to let him do whatever he wants to do. No matter what the cost, no matter what the loss, no matter what the gain, no matter what the pain, we must give him that permission. That's all part of freedom. We aren't free unless we have come to that point. And then even then, it's becoming. It's becoming fully alive. Free to forgive, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Ephesians 4.32, what does it mean to forgive? Well, what it's not is it doesn't mean we have to forget. We might always remember the offense, but it comes to the point where it has no pain anymore. It has no control over us anymore. Certainly, it's not minimizing or condoning or saying it's okay because if this offense wasn't okay with the Lord, this offense against us or this sin against us, if it wasn't okay with him, he certainly doesn't expect it to be okay with us. So explaining it away, minimizing or condoning is not going to set us free. But what is forgiving? Forgiving includes canceling the debt, which frees the forgiver. The debt is what you owe me. The debt is what I think you should have done. The debt is that part of uh, that, that entitlement that I think I have, that claim. And I'm going to cancel that when I forgive. It frees me, actually, the forgiver. But it does not free the offender, in God's eyes, from responsibility. Forgiveness is extended unconditionally. It must be unconditional. Realizing that the offense may reoccur. That's a challenge. It's a separate issue from trusting the offender again, because that offender may never be trustworthy. And our relationship with that person may be limited, appropriately so, and with wisdom. It may need to be. Did you know that an unforgiving spirit is never satisfied? It's always making a demand or a claim based on what it thinks is right. 
It's also characterized by a pay me what you owe me attitude. What then would characterize a forgiving spirit along with what I've already said? Well, when faced with the thought that the offense might reoccur, the forgiver cancels the debt in advance. In other words, what if this happens again? It's been happening. What if it happens again? There's the temptation. Well, a forgiving spirit is we forgive in advance. It may or may not ever happen again, but we forgive in advance with that an attitude that the other person owes me nothing for my sake because Jesus has given me everything. So there's a great exchange that takes place. I'm not minimizing. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm not saying they're not wrong. But in the face of that offense, I really have a choice to make. Will I continue to make my claim in my heart for what I think was right? Or will it be more important to me that my heart is right? Will it be more important to me that Jesus is having his way with me? Will it be more important to me that Jesus is my desire? So I'm actually going to exchange my claim for him. He's going to be enough. He's going to be my life. He's going to be my desire. Now, if I ever need to confront that person with wisdom, I will have already forgiven them, and I'll be confronting them for their sake, not my sake. And that's love, commitment to relationship and commitment to them, wanting the best for them. There's a big difference between that and I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. I've had enough. They've been getting by with this all over the place. Somebody's got to stop them. Somebody's got to confront them. That's not a forgiving attitude. It's not wise, and it will never bear fruit. So if I ever do say something, I need to have already forgiven. I need to already have let it go, and I need to have already exchanged what I've wanted, what I thought I needed, for Christ himself. Do I want him for himself, or do I want him for what he can do for me? Oh, he wants to do more for us than we can imagine, but he wants us on him for himself because of who he is he's God he wants to be our Lord our Savior our father our friend our life free to love and to be loved first John 419 we love because he first loved us this is another component in the process of becoming free and fully alive do you realize there's no greater love test and then to forgive someone. I know that's true because Jesus Christ is our example because the greatest act of sacrificial love in history was extended by Jesus Christ, was demonstrated by Jesus Christ. And what did it cost him? It cost him his life. We can't really separate that great love from forgiveness. It was because of that great love that forgiveness was available. The forgiver must pay. The forgiver must pay. It's so unfair, isn't it? The forgiver always pays. He paid. Jesus paid for all of our sins, and he didn't commit a one. And when we forgive someone, we pay. Does that mean we have to be Jesus and do it all over again? No, no, no. He paid in the sense that he took the human, all the sins of the human race upon himself and all the effects, died on the cross, came alive, resurrected, offered it all up to the Father. When we forgive similar, similar, in a similar fashion, excuse me, in a similar way, we take all the effects on ourselves. Because it's going to cost us something, isn't it? But what do we do? We don't retain those. We offer it up to our Father and let him heal our hearts 
even as we cancel the debt and take him in exchange. As you relate to others, is your resource for loving them, the love or the lack of which they're expressing to you. Some of us might say of our marriage or another relationship, they may say, well, you know, that other person's just not loving me. I hear it many times from husbands. Oh, my wife's not much of encouragement these days. She's just not encouraging me enough. She's not loving me enough. And of course, God's design in marriage is for the husband to be the lover and the wife is the responder. So there's the husband, the lover, looking to his wife to be the capital, to be the resource, to be that which he's going to work with in terms of loving her back. But what God wants is our love source to be him. We love our wives and one another because he first loved us. So has Jesus poured his love abroad in our hearts? He pour, has he poured his love into our hearts? And are we loving out of his love? Or are we loving dependent on the love that somebody else is giving us or the lack thereof? And you hear it often. Well, you don't, you're not very kind lately. Well, you're not very kind either. Well, you're not very loving lately. Well, you, you certainly haven't been loving either. So are we reflecting on the horizontal what's coming or not coming? Are we a reflection of the other person in our relationship? Or are we always going to be a reflection of him, regardless of how we're being treated? Are we going to reflect and live out of his love? Have you noticed that often those who say they don't have a great need for love from others are not very expressive of love to others? I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Isn't it true that if you've tasted the love of God, and have experienced it expressed through others, you're all the more motivated, all the more motivated to express that love to others. My father wasn't an example of how to love his wife. My father wasn't really a good example of preparing me to be a husband and a father, but I wasn't limited because when I surrendered my life to Jesus 30 years ago, the husband, capital H, moved in. The lover, capital L, moved in. The father moved in. And he's taught me how to love my wife. He's taught me how to be a father. I'm responding to him. I'm not limited. Oh, it'd be wonderful to have great role models. That's great. That's wonderful. But so many times we make excuses and, and we say, you know, I really haven't had any role models in my life. I really haven't had an example. So in other words, that's my excuse. Oh, don't stop there. Don't stop there. I didn't have the role model that I needed, but I had the life. God gave me the life that I needed, and I cooperated with this life that is in me, and he taught me how to love my wife, and he taught me how to father my children, and I don't want to be limited to what's coming from somebody else. I want to be tapping into the unlimited supply, the unlimited love. And the reason why I love to love people is because I'm so loved <laughs> by my father, by my father. Yeah. Oh, he thinks I'm wonderful. He thinks you are too, by the way, lest you think I'm getting too high on myself. But I, he, he loves me. He likes me. He, he just, he is, he's just so pleased with me, not because I'm a pastor, not because I've been his son for 30 years. Oh, he, he thinks I'm wonderful. And so when I'm telling you that you are, I'm speaking with eyes of reality or eyes of destiny is the case of me. That's, that's what he wants you to lay hold of and live from that. Not your history, not recounting your failures 
or even looking back at your successes and weighing it all out, but living from the reality that your father loves you. He's reveling over you. Totally different than maybe what you experienced with your earthly father, but he is our heavenly father, and he is wonderful. Free from the message of the arrows. This was part two of our series. The first part was entitled, the sessions that I've just reviewed were entitled, uh, Becoming Relationally Free. Now in the second part, we're talking about getting your whole heart back, being free from the message of the arrows. And of course, the message of the arrows related to the arrow of pride, shame, fear, rejection, anger, and depression. And every arrow, every one of those arrows that we need to be free of, if we're going to be fully alive and free, every one of those arrows is dipped in the poison of pride. Because whether it's shame, think about it, shame, we're always on our mind. We're thinking about our past. We're believing into our history. We're letting somebody else have more power over us or say so over us than our Heavenly Father. And pride is all about that self-focus and self-sufficiency. When it comes to fear, when it comes to fear, if it isn't real to us how much he loves us and that he's going to take care of us, we are going to be taking care of ourselves. If we're believing the message of the arrow of fear, we're, the takeaway from that message is you've got to take care of yourself. Nobody else is going to take care of you. I'm not convinced. He wants to take care of me, so I'm going to be a survivor. And we almost take pride in that. And then anger, setting standards for others, demanding them to jump through our hoops, and when they don't, we get angry. The pride of us setting the standards, the pride of us demanding absolute obedience. Pretty depressing, isn't it? And then the rejection, believing the lie of who we are, and actually doing and saying things that bring on more rejection. So what arrow or arrows have, had, have you had in you? Pride, you're always on your mind. Shame, false identity. Fear, self-sufficiency, self-trust, survivor mentality. Rejection, getting into the victim thinking, the poor me, nobody loves me. Anger, setting standards. Depression, putting your hope in other than God. Pretty depressing. Let's pause just for a moment and consider what arrows are still in you? These arrows want to keep you from intimacy with God. These arrows want to rob you. The arrow of pride, Proverbs 22.4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches honor, and life. Are you looking for riches, honor, and life? A fulfilled and contented life? A happy life? Is that your goal, or will that be your reward? Have you ever noticed what letter is in the middle of the word pride? The big I. Did you know that pride is an issue of significance? We do have an appetite for significance. We want our lives to count. We want to be in two-way love relationship. We want to make a difference on planet Earth. God-given appetite, that's not a sin issue. How we seek to satisfy that appetite 
may be a different story. If we're trying to satisfy that appetite and achieve significance, meaning, purpose, and value, apart from or in addition to Jesus Christ, he wants to be our sufficiency. He wants to be our definer, even as he is our refiner. Will we let him be both? God's antidote for the arrow of pride is humility and the fear of the Lord, which is simply agreeing with God and making Jesus the reason. Agree with God. He's always right. If you haven't repented of running your life and savingly believed, that's curable. If you have, agree with God that you're a son and not a hired hand or an orphan. Free from the arrow of shame. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you know that when God forgives, he not only takes care of the penalty, because he, he paid the prize, but he also takes away the stain. And because he came to defeat the works of the devil, he also takes away the stain of sins committed against us. He's got it all covered. All covered. This really is the place of immunity that uh, Francis Frangipan talks about. True freedom. True freedom is the place of immunity where we let God pay the price. We let God take the stain away. That's freedom. That place of immunity where we enjoy freedom in him and who we really are in him. Did you know that your healing and restoration involves not only taking full responsibility for your part, but it also allow, it means that you've got to let others take responsibility for their part. What we tend to do is, if we do take responsibility, we sometimes take it too far and we just take it all. So, and sometimes we kind of go back and forth between the blame game and the shame game. The blame game is it's all their fault. And the shame game is it's all my fault. We go back and forth, but God just simply wants us to agree with him. Take what's ours, repent and receive, agree with God on theirs. Did you know that God's remedy for your feelings of false guilt or shame when the guilty person is someone other than you is agree with God and give the guilt to whom it belongs. Get the shame off of you. This is huge when it comes to things like uh, sexual abuse and deep violations of those kinds. We need to take responsibility. Maybe a, a large part of our responsibility is how we've responded in our hearts, having been abused or violated. We maybe have had hatred in our hearts. We need, to, we need to own that because that'll destroy us. That'll do a whole lot more damage than what was done to us to begin with if we have things in our hearts like that. So take our part, repent, obey, but then agree with God on their part. Let them be responsible. They may never take responsibility, and I'm not saying you have to tell them they should, but let them, between you and God, agree with him. God's antidote for the arrow of shame. Receive your sonship. You are a favored son or daughter. It's an identity issue. This whole thing of shame is an identity issue because the false guilt of shame will seek to misdefine us. And then there's freedom from the arrow of fear. 1 John 4:18. there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. Did you know that the fear of man is an issue of idolatry? That motivates me not to put anything or anyone ahead of God. That motivates me not to be guilty of peace at any price. That motivates me all the more to be a man of integrity. Oh, yes, I need wisdom. I don't necessarily need to say everything that's on my mind. I don't agree with everything that's on the radar screen of my mind, so I certainly don't have to blurt, blurt it out. 
But am I free? Am I free to, free not to? Because if I'm holding back out of fear, that is not the fear of the Lord, but the fear of man, which is a snare and is putting somebody ahead of God. Is somebody's opinion or approval too important? That's all part of what the fear of man is all about. God wants to be the one to have the last say. Did you know that fear is an issue of security also? Do you believe that God really loves you and wants to take care of you? He does. He not only loves us, but it's a love of affection. It's a love of, I want to take care of you. Will you let me take care? And of course, right away, our thoughts may go, well, what have you, look what you have allowed. You have allowed me to be abused. You have allowed me to be violated. How can I trust you? Oh, that's a lie of the enemy. We've got to be willing to be hurt again. We've got to be willing to be wounded again. And we need to realize you will be hurt again. You will be wounded again. You will be betrayed again. You will feel rejected again. It is life on planet Earth. But God actually wants to use it for good. That's where we need to embrace, embrace these things from the standpoint of submitting to God and his sovereignty and ask him to use it all for good to shape us into the person he wants us to be, which will make us more compassionate which will make us more caring, which will make us uh, vessels fit for the master's use in helping others. Because there's people all over the place that have been betrayed. There's people all over the place that have been hurt and wounded and offended. And we'll actually be able to help them. Because we've been there and we've come out of it. We've been tested in the fire and we've come forth as gold because we got bitter instead of better and surrendered to him. It can happen. It can be. Our response is the essential thing. How will we respond to these things? Because we're all going to face these things. It's life on planet Earth. God's antidote for the arrow of fear. Receive God's perfect love and let him take care of you. Free from the arrow of rejection, Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein we've been accepted in the Beloved. Did you know that although Jesus Christ experienced more rejection, rejection than anyone ever has or ever will, he wasn't a victim. He knew who he was. He knew whose he was. He knew why he was here. He came to do the will of the Father. Isn't it interesting to contrast Jesus' response to rejection, all that he faced on planet Earth, and Cain's response back in Genesis 4, Chapter 4, his response to the perceived rejection that he experienced because his offering wasn't acceptable to the Lord. Cain took a life, his brothers, and Jesus gave his life for the whole human race. That's what Jesus wants our response to be. Agree with him on what's true of us. Did you know that how you see yourself or what you believe about yourself will affect how you live and relate to others? Something that will help settle it at the extreme. What if everybody on planet Earth rejected you? Let's say that's true. It won't be true, but let's say it was. Settle it at the extreme. Even if they do, Jesus loves and accepts us in him as a son or a daughter. Is that enough? If it is, we're free. If it's not, it's idolatry. Repent of the idolatry. Let him have the last say. God's antidote for the arrow of rejection. Reject rejection and receive your acceptance in Jesus Christ. 
free from the arrow of anger. Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil opportunity. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Did you know that anger is a signal or an alarm to let us know that something might be out of order? Regarding anger, have you ever heard it said that anger is a feeling or an emotion that is neither right or wrong? But what you do with it is the important thing. This would appear to be an incomplete statement based on God's word. It's true that a person can be angry without sinning. Ephesians 4.26 would support that. But the examples of anger mentioned in Ephesians 4.31 and 1 Samuel 18.8 and Genesis 4.5 are clearly not neutral. Cain's anger, for example, Cain's anger, that wasn't neutral in, in Genesis 4. King Saul's anger and jealousy in 1 Samuel 18, 8, that wasn't neutral. It wasn't acceptable to the Lord. And yes, righteous or wrong or even neutral, what we do with the anger is the most important thing. In order to get this anger out, though, it may not want to come out until we resolve the anger, the arrows rather, of pride, shame, fear, and rejection, because all those things could be contributing to the anger. Think about it. If you're embroiled in shame, if you're embroiled in rejection, the stage is set for you to be angry. Those arrows must be resolved in order for the arrow of anger to come out also. God's antidote for the arrow of anger, submit to the sovereign will and purposes of God. Here we are again. It keeps coming back to that. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you'll save it. If we're going to become fully alive and free, we must let God do whatever he wants to do. If we try to hang on, we'll be limiting ourselves. But he wants to be specific, thus the arrows, thus the particulars that we're talking about today. And then there's depression. Psalm 42, 5, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Did you know if you're always on your mind, it'll deepen your depression? Conversely, if you put your hope in God, and he's always on your mind, you're practicing his presence. Every thought is a conversation with God, preoccupied with him as you're occupied with what he brings to your hand. It'll definitely help in a major way, being free from the arrow of depression. And again, all these arrows that I've mentioned can contribute to depression. Did you know that depression is an issue of hope? And the antidote for this arrow is put your hope in God. Not yourself, not somebody else. The sooner we learn that, the better. I've had people put me on a pedestal. You've probably put people on pedestals too. The sooner everybody but God gets off that pedestal, the better. And I really think that the hurts and the wounds, the disappointments and the unmet expectations are what God wants to use to get people off pedestals. That doesn't mean people are excused from doing wrong. It doesn't mean people are excused from wronging you. But you will add to the hurt. You'll add to the offense. You'll add to the potential disillusionment if you give a place to a person that only God deserves. Nobody deserves the place he deserves. It'll set you up if you give them that place. The answer isn't to be cynical. The answer isn't to be self-protective and self-sufficient. 
the answer isn't to be disillusioned, but in a sense, a sanctified disillusionment, if you will, as Oswald Chambers says, and my utmost for his highest, sanctified in the sense that there's only one you trust implicitly. And anybody else that you trust, it's going to be experientially developed. And that's the way it needs to be, because some people aren't trustworthy. There's not a, there is not a verse in the Bible that commands us to trust another human being. And yet we sometimes feel, because of the loyalty in us and, and because we, we think it's all part of being a better Christian, we, we think we're supposed to be trusting of people. We're supposed to trust people, and we almost feel guilty if we don't at times. That's a standard that we're setting. It's not God's. Because nobody is trustworthy implicitly except God. So we need to be wise and not just trusting without wisdom. I'm not saying distrusting to protect ourselves. Free to trust, but being wise and realizing some people are not trustworthy relationally or in other ways. That's all part of doing relationship on God's terms, not their terms or our terms. And then the third part of this series, winning the war for your heart started with tearing down spiritual strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. And right there we have a definition of everything we're talking about. A stronghold is an argument, a pretension, anything or everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. It's something, it's a, it's a mindset, it's, it's an idea, it's a proposition that doesn't agree with who God is or what he says or what his will is, and therein becomes the basis of the stronghold. Did you realize that there is a war going on? in our hearts and for our hearts. The enemy of our soul, Satan, though he is a defeated foe, he's like a terrorist still at war against our hearts. And do you realize how important it is to guard your heart above all things? It's a treasure. It's no longer trouble. You better watch it. You better watch it or it's going to get away from you again. It's a treasure. What better reason to guard your heart above all things and continue to cultivate it, keep it free and clear from offense and unforgiveness and, and unrighteous anger and those kind of things that would hurt you more than anybody else could hurt you. Are you aware that if you receive the message of the arrows, the pride, the rejection, the shame, that strongholds will form in your life, such as houses of thought, resident ideas, belief systems, fortresses of feelings, systems of the sentiment, and collections of the counterfeit, all of which don't agree with God. That's why they're strongholds. And they will keep us from being free to be the real us, and they'll keep us from intimacy with God, and they'll limit us in every relationship, and we won't be becoming fully alive. Putting on the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Philippians, Ephesians rather, 6, 10, and 11. Did you know that Jesus himself is the armor of God? He is our truth. Put on the belt of truth. He is our truth. He is our righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
He is our readiness. If you got your sandals on, he's always ready. You may not be, but he is. The shield of faith quenching all the fiery darts of the enemy. He is our faith. We have the faith of the Son of God in us to draw upon. We don't need faith in faith. We don't need to gear up faith. We have the best faith. We have the most complete faith. The one who is faith is our life. Agree with God. Agree with him. He is our salvation. The helmet of salvation for our thought life. The word, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. When we put him on, and he's already in us, he's already on us. So, Figuratively speaking, when we put on the armor of God, we're appropriating what's already true, already true about us. Did you realize that the battle is the Lord's? Are you confident that he will give you the victory? Take every thought captive, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, part B. Are we taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Does your heart life, does your heart life ever commit high treason against your commander-in-chief? In order to win the war for your heart, you must take every thought captive to make it obey. Are you aware that taking every thought captive involves rejecting all vic victim thinking, orphan thinking, and even stinking thinking, none of which agree with God? Do you realize that if you don't take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, that the enemy will try to take you captive? Escaping temptation. For the sake of time, I'll just cover some high points as we bring it in for a landing this morning. Did you know that Jesus himself is our way of escape? There is a war going on in our hearts, as I've said, but we must not allow the temptations that appear on our radar screen, the radar screen of our heart and our mind, to define us. Instead, we must allow our commander-in-chief to be the one who does. We must counter, we must counter we must counter our enemy's counterfeit intelligence. Have you ever thought that the blips that come on your radar screen are really, he's trying to feed you some false intelligence. He's trying to feed you some lies. You know, we want to know what's going on, right? We want to obey God. So he feeds, he puts some false, or some false intelligence, some counterfeit intelligence on the radar screen of our hearts. But we must counter that counterfeit by renewing our minds with the truth about us, according to the word of God, instead of believing every blip that, ap that appears on our radar screen. And then when it comes to exercising authority, are we confident? Are we confident in the command of these weapons of our warfare? These weapons that have to do with the name of Jesus, the blood of the lamb, and uh, the word of God. Are these the weapons that we wield day to day? Are these the primary weapons? For though we live in the world, we, not, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So as we've gone through these past several weeks and we have entered into this stream of becoming fully alive, I really believe these are the components. These are the components that if we will embrace will be used of the Lord to cause us to become fully alive. I love, I love the balance and the perspective of this because we need to take full responsibility. Our hearts need to be clean. It's, 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 it's so easy for us to be blaming someone else. Uh, some who are sons and daughters will 
be so focused on the enemy and every problem, every difficulty, every sickness is the devil. So they're going after the devil all the time. That won't help us. But we do need discernment to know when it is the enemy. And I believe the best way we can have discernment is to be centered in Jesus Christ. He is our life. He is our goal. He's not just somebody we're trying to use to live life better, the best counselor, the best everything. So we got the best, but we're still living our lives and we're still running the show. No, he is our goal. He is our life. And we realize what a treasure, what a treasure his life in us is. And we realize that nobody is worth damaging our relationship with him. That really gets my attention. He's the reason I forgive because nobody is worth it. If I have unforgiveness, that is going to not only hurt me and hurt my relationship with that person and with others, but it most of all is going to hurt my relationship with the Lord. And nobody is worth that. Nobody, because this is so precious to me. I'm so grateful. That's a part of it. So we take full responsibility. And then we see we live on planet Earth and there's stuff that goes on where people are selfish, doing their own thing, and sinning against us and sinning against others. We, we must not get cynical. We must not judge unrighteously. We must count it all joy. We must ask the Lord to break us. We must ask the Lord to mold and shape us. We must ask the Lord to use everything he wants to use in our life to make us the son and daughter he wants us to be. Defining us, but also embracing and celebrating the the refining are we celebrating the refining part if we don't celebrate the refining part we're very vulnerable to the enemy's lies and schemes because the enemy wants to feed that entitlement mentality well you've been a christian for 30 years now steve god ought to be treating you better by now or you shouldn't have these problems it ought to be getting easier by now no 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 <laughs> whatever it takes lord whatever it takes but then a boldness that comes as we, as we are more and more confident in who we are and whose we are, there's a boldness. There's a boldness. We're not looking for a fight. We're not looking for a fight. We're not being arrogant toward the enemy. We're not playing games with him. But we realize, oh yes, he has set me free. I know what it's like not to be. I know what it's like to be. I want to, I want to be becoming ever increasingly free, but I also am looking around now and I want to see others be free. Not just I, but I want others to be free. Not just freedom for freedom's sake, but I want you to be free. Thus, this series, Becoming Fully Alive, where it's been my desire to convince you, you can be free. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time. Add the increase to it, Lord. Thank you that freedom is in you. Apart from you, there is none. May our hunger, may our desire be ever increasingly becoming fully alive and free. In Jesus' name.